You know, I've, I've told you all uh, about some of our, my personal past. You know, I used to ride motorcycles and so did all my family. We had all these dirt bikes. We still do. The dirt bikes are now up in Cloudcroft at our cabin. But we used to uh, ride uh, very aggressively. And if you go out here outside the uh, synagogue and you go to the edge where you can look out over the west part of El Paso, you'll see down by Sunland Park this big red bowl. Have any of you seen that big red bowl of sand down there? It's called Stair Steps. And it uh, it's, looks small from here, but when you get down there, it's... It's a huge bowl of sand, and the, uh, the sand is uh, very deep and very, depending on how much rain we've had, it's loose or, or firm, and the inclines on that bowl at stair steps are very, uh, very high and, and very angled. Uh, some of those angles are over 45 degrees. I mean, you get towards the top, and you're almost going straight up, and, uh, and we would go up that like crazy people. But we, we would pull up there on our motorcycles and we would look, my brother David and I and, and uh, VJ and some of the others that we used to ride with, um, and we would look at the, look at the bowl and you'd, you'd see where all the other motorcycles had, and other people had gone up and you'd kind of study it for a moment then you'd pick a line. You, you'd say, you know, I've got, to, I've got to get this way and then up there I've got to turn this way and this way and this way. And then you'd rev the engine up and you'd just scream the motor as fast as it would go. You'd peg the throttle. The dirt would fly out the back and you'd zoom up that hill. And the, the main thing you had to do was make sure that you kept the wheel straight along the line you were going and that you did not take any power off the throttle or you would, you would crash. And of course, on a 45-degree angle, there's uh, not a lot of room for error and you would crash and you could never get your bike started and you'd have to drag it down the hill sometimes you'd roll down the mountain it was awful so the the important thing was to look at where you're going given all the gas you had all the power you could muster and then shoot at it with all the strength you could and as you got close to the top you'd lean hard over the handlebars because otherwise you'd go this way you'd get such a steep angle and you'd just pray to God that you got to the end of the top. There was contemplation, there was planning for just a moment. We didn't spend a lot of time studying because you know your courage would evaporate. So you had to do it quick while you were still a little crazy. And, um, but once you committed once you shot up that mountain, once you went, you were all in. There was no going back. There's no stopping and kind of holding on because the grade was too steep. You weren't just going to be able to go halfway and kind of stop and rethink things because if you stopped, you went down, you rolled down. And believe me, I saw and have, was in some terrible accidents. And so you don't want to stop. You don't want to quit. You commit and you go all in. And that's what it's like to live in this world. Whether you're a Christian or not, you're all in. Now some of us live comfortable enough lives and we think, well, you know, I can get by. It's not a, a big deal. I don't have to push quite that hard. I can kind of choose. I can negotiate. But sometimes you can't. And life can get pretty, pretty crazy. And parents, those of you that are parents and most of you are either parents or you were a child, you were one or the other at some point, 
most of us want to be equipped. We want to be equipped and we want to equip our children. We want to train them in the way that they should go. We want to show them the line. Because why? Because we've been up that line. We know where all the pitfalls are. We know where you need to hold on tight, where you need to lean in, where you need to maybe change course a little bit. We have been there. We've done that, as they say. And so it's our desperate, desperate desire to pass this along to our children. The sage, the writer of Proverbs, Solomon wrote many of them, but there were other contributors. And Solomon was compiling wisdom from all over the ancient Near East. And the sage wanted to impart that wisdom to his children. And he recognizes, listen folks, he recognizes the sage is wise. He's been in the battle. He knows where the pitfalls are. He knows what the minefield looks at. He knows, those of you that are in the military, he knows where the IEDs are planted along the road. He knows where they are. And he's desperate to tell his son, his children, the way to make it up that hill or down that road or through that minefield successfully so they don't get destroyed, so their lives are not ruined and wrecked, so they don't roll down the mountain, but actually can make it. The sage recognizes that there are spiritual forces inside creation. And there's wisdom needed to overcome the chaos. What the sage does in the book of Proverbs, and what we're going to talk about in a moment, he helps us, listen, he helps us see what is always there. You see, there's nothing that's unseen. It may be buried under the ground, or it may be off to the side, or it may be a little hole in the ground, or an uneven spot. But he knows where it is. So he's helping us to see what's there that we don't understand, that maybe we are ignorant to, but He knows. And He's asking us to compare one with another. That's what Proverbs is. That's what wisdom means. It means taking one thing and comparing it with another. In other words, He wants to show you the truth and ask you to make a choice. Ask you to choose. And kids, young people, every one of you, your life is going to be a series of choices. Some of them are going to be good choices and they're going to work out bad. Good. Some of them are going to be bad choices and they're going to work out bad. But God is telling you and wanting you to know that whether you make a good choice or a bad choice, you're going to need wisdom. Listen, you're going to need wisdom in both choices, yes? If you make a good one, you're still going to need wisdom because that good choice can lead you to idolatry. And if you make a bad choice, you're going to need wisdom in order to correct your course. Wisdom is always necessary. And parents often... Look, I've been a parent. I still am a parent. And it's very often that we raise our children and we want to teach them to be tough like men. You know, uh, fathers love to they want to teach their boys to be strong and manly and tough and strong and not cry and all this other stuff. Women want to teach their daughters how to be sensitive and caring and loving and nurturing and so on and so forth. And we all want our children to be the smartest and the, the most beautiful and all and on and on. We go on and on and on. We want to equip them with those things. 
But how many parents really drill down on the idea, I want my child to be wise. I want them to know how to compare this with that. And then take the action necessary to move forward. So we're going to look at that today. You know, we've been talking over the past few weeks, and I'm sorry I'm taking a little long with the introduction, but we're going to go in a little different direction. And so we've been looking at the seven things that God hates with the idea in mind that if you know what He hates, you can also know what He loves. And maybe next year, after the first of the year, we'll start looking at some of those things. But he talks about these. Let me give them to you quickly. He talks about haughty eyes. In other words, pride, our attitude of pride. He talks about our thoughts, hearts that devise wicked plans. He's talking about our attitude. These are internal, our thoughts, what's going on in our heart. Then he moves into lying speech and a crooked tongue. God hates lies, whether you're lying to yourself about something or whether you're lying to others. He wants us to be truth tellers. And then now he moves into deeds. This is the fourth. He he hates evil deeds, or the way he puts it, hands that shed innocent blood and feet that make haste or run to do evil. Do you see how the internal posture of this person is now uh, influencing and creating a problem for their external uh, behavior? Very, um, uh, very telling. So we're going to look at three things and we'll do it quickly this morning. We're going to look first at wickedness. The idea of a wicked deed. Secondly, we're going to look at the idea of wisdom. How wisdom comes at it. And finally, a graceful garland. And we're going to do this uh, by reading Psalm, or Proverbs, excuse me, Proverbs 1, uh, 8 through 19. So uh, if you have your, your handout, uh, please take it out. If you have your Bible, you can look at that. And uh, while y'all are doing that, I'm going to ask uh, Dan if you wouldn't mind. Would you guys grab this and take it back? Thanks. And this, be careful, it's kind of heavy. Thank you, brother. Okay, so if you have your uh, scripture, let me read it to you real quick, and you all follow along. There's an insert, uh, both Proverbs 6 and Proverbs 1. So we're going to read the Proverbs 1 passage. And listen carefully, this is just a beautiful passage from the very beginning of the Proverbs, so it's an introduction as well. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and a pendant for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason, like Sheol, we will swallow them up alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. For their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. 
For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, let's look first of all at wickedness. As I told you last week, here's a definition for wickedness that is very Hebrew, very Old Testament, very ancient Near East. Uh, We think of wickedness in the West kind of as just doing sins, doing things that are bad. But in the ancient Near East, it was commonly accepted that wickedness was when a person advantaged themselves at another's expense. That could be any number of things. It could be thousands. It could be literally millions of things. But that in the Old Testament was wickedness. Wickedness was advantaging yourself at another's expense. In other words, it cost somebody for you to get whichever you got. So if you're walking in a parking lot, you know, I've do a lot of walking. I go out and walk and I walk five and a half miles. My route is five and a half miles. And a few months ago I was walking along and I saw out in the middle of the street, I was walking on the side, I saw a $20 bill folded up. And I went over and I picked it up and I looked around. There was nobody around. There was, you know, houses, but what am I going to do? Go knock on the doors? No. Because every door, what would they have said to me? That's my $20. So, I said, you know, thank you, Lord. Very Christian thing to say. Thank you, Jesus. Put the $20 in my pocket and I went on my way. Well, that's an advantage to me. I didn't walk into somebody's house and take the $20 out of their wallet, you see, and disadvantage them, the $20. That's what wickedness is. And I want you to broaden your thinking when it comes to wickedness. How we advantage ourselves at another's expense. In the same sense, in the Old Testament, righteousness, we think uh, in our world, we think of righteousness in a very Protestant way, that righteousness is imputed, that it's forensic, that that's something God gives us and clothes us with. But in the Old Testament, righteousness was your deeds, your actions, how you acted. And righteousness was always seen in this way. It was a good deed, a good act, a right act that was going to cost you something. Jesus put it this way. Jesus said, if you love those that love you, what did He say? If you love those that love you, what thanks do you have? Even sinners do that. I mean, the worst sinner in the world loves the other sinner, right? That's no big deal. And the next words out of his mouth are the genius of righteousness. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those that hurt you. Bless those that curse you. Bless those that despitefully, in other words, with malice, abuse you. Bless them. Now you've done something because it costs to do that. It costs us to love a spouse who does not love us back. It costs us 
to love children who are, who are acting out and being rebellious. It costs us to go to work every day and love and obey and uh, fulfill our jobs at, works, at work in our, our employment when our boss hates our guts or co-workers are making our lives miserable. Yes? It costs you something. And God is saying that is righteousness. So there's wickedness advantaging yourself at another's expense, but there's righteousness. Doing what is right in God's eyes even when it costs you. Because when you do that, think about this folks, when you actually do that, who are you most perfectly representing? Who are you acting like when you do that? Which of us can say, I have been God's friend all my life. I have served Him so well. I have done so much good for Him. Of course He would love me. Heaven won't be heaven if I'm not there. I mean, I have to be there, otherwise it's not heaven. I'm such a blessing to everybody that I meet. Who can say that? We know that God loved us when? First, before, while we were yet sinners, He commended His love to us. In this way, He gave His Son for us. If you ever question your worth, folks, if you ever wonder, you know, I wonder if I'm really worth anything. I wonder if I really have any meaning. I wonder if my, my life is really, if it matters. Let me tell you this. Whatever scales you have in your life, everybody has them, right? We all have scales. We're all weighing all the time, all of our deeds, our goodness, and all this other stuff. We're weighing it all the time. Whenever you have questions, you say, am I worthy? Am I worth anything? I just want you to think of one thing. The cross. Because God took His entire treasure, everything that was precious, beyond any cost that we could even possibly imagine. In fact, we will spend eternity marveling at the cost. And He took all of that... And He put it on the scale and said to each one of you, you are worth this. And then He asks us a simple question. Will you trust Me? Will you trust Me? That's the question He asks these parents. Will you trust Me with the life? What is most precious to you, Adriana? What's most precious to me, my son Daniel, my son Justin, my daughters-in-law Jamie and Amanda, and my grandbaby. The things that are most precious to me, will you trust me? That's what he's asking us. And the father of this son is brilliant. In other words, he knows the route. He knows the way. He knows where the mines are, the IEDs, the pits, the falls. He knows the track because he's been there. He's not a naive father. You know, kids, you all think that you're the smartest people in the world and your parents don't know anything. They know more than you. If you live till you're 30, you will start to see how wise they are. And if you get to be 60 like me, then your parents become geniuses. 
I used to make fun of my grandfather, Charlie Stevens, who I'm named after. I was very close to him. I used to make fun of him. He doesn't know anything. He's old-fashioned. He's this and that. The older I get, the smarter he becomes. I think the man was a genius. How come he didn't tell me any of these things back when I... And you all know he was telling me all the time, right? But I wasn't listening because I knew more than him. Wisdom is listening and the Father is brilliant. He knows the mind of the evil ones. He knows their mind. He knows where they've laid the IEDs, the mines, the traps, the pitfalls. He knows to route up the mountain. And He's telling His Son, My Son, listen to Me. The invitation, He doesn't deny that the invitation is enticing. He doesn't say that it's not enticing. In fact, He says it's easy pickings. Let us lie and wait for them. We'll ambush it. It'll be easy. They're not going to even know we're coming. It's easy money. He says it's precious goods. We'll fill our houses with plunder. Easy money. We'll have power over them. We're going to swallow them up like the grave. He's promising the young man, the son, everything that is appealing to us. Money, easy money. You don't have to work hard. You don't have to think about it. You just, hey, it just comes to you, right? Easy money, easy pickings, power, and no risk. Hey, we're all in this together. Throw in your lot with us. We're all going to be okay. We're going to be in a community. The risk is spread out over a lot of people. So don't worry. Don't be afraid. And the peer pressure. He never denies that peer pressure is real. Parents, wake up. Peer pressure is real in the life of your kids. And you know what? Adults, you know this because you still bend and, and, and go in directions. Even today as adults, we do it with peer pressure. Yes? We just are more clever at hiding it than our kids. But we all suffer from peer pressure. Look at how he, how he puts it. Eight times in this verse, he uses the word, let us, we, us, we, us. Eight times he stresses it in just one verse, emphasizing the pressure that is on the young person to do what is wicked. And finally, his description is not of a human being. Think of this. His description is of an animal crouching, hiding, waiting to pounce, waiting to jump. What he's telling the young man is, look, this is what a Proverbs is. This is like this, or this is not like this. Then he's laying out the, uh, the choice to you. He's saying, look at these two. Do you want to be an animal? Or do you want to be a human being? When my kids were little and they would get dressed up, I would tell them, you know, you look like a person. <laughs> oh, Dad, you know, they, said, they didn't know what I was talking about. I'd say, yeah, you're looking like a person, you know. We want to be people. We don't want to be animals. When you see somebody that's living on the street who's an addict or uh, an alcoholic and they've lost everything and they're living like an animal. And they, I, I was at a, 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 a place the other day having a cold drink after my workout and this man walked in, he was talking to himself and he was doing all kinds of crazy things and my heart just broke. I thought, what happened to this person? What got him here? To go from human being to just barely... I mean, animals have more sense, Yes? 
You all know you've seen this. You may know some people like that. How heartbreaking. So what do you do? Well, he says, choose. Choose wisdom. Look at the next verses. 8, 10, 15. I pulled out a few. He gives us imperatives. He tells his son this. Hear. Hear. In other words, open your ears. Don't just hear auditorially so that you just kind of goes in your ear. He wants you to truly hear. And here was always tied to action. He uses the Hebrew word Shema. You all have heard of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He uses the word Shema. Hear. And here in the ancient Near East meant what it means today and what every parent knows. You don't want them just to hear your words. You want them to hear and do what? Listen. Act. Follow what they hear. Hear your father's instruction. Here he uses a Hebrew word, Musar. It means instruction. Then he says, and forsake not, or don't leave unattended, don't leave unattended, don't not pay attention to your mother's teaching. He uses the word Torah. The Torah, the the teaching of your mother, the lessons, the instruction of your father. Hear them, don't leave them unattended. Do them. Act. Hearing in the Bible means acting. Always. Jesus would get up and He would talk and He would end off and He would end His speech or His sermon with these words. He that has ears to hear, what? Let him hear. He was was recognizing the fact that we can hear with our ears but not do. That we can actually do that. And he was saying, don't do that. Hear. Let him who has ears to hear, hear and do. Follow what I'm saying. So there are imperatives. Don't consent. Don't walk. Hold back. He's simply saying, you are going to have to act. You're going to have to take uh, measures and make an effort. You know, somehow, folks, I think we get the idea when we talk, and, and I'm guilty, I talk a lot about grace in our church. Maybe too much. Some people have said too much. I don't believe it's too much. Because I think if you understand God's grace, truly understand His grace, it will not lead you to license. It will lead you to love. And love always obeys. Yes? If you truly love somebody, you will do what they're asking you to do. You will trust them. And that's what grace truly... If somebody is, is, is taking the message of grace and saying, oh, it's just we can do whatever we want now. God loves us. All the, all the oxen free. We don't have to do anything. They don't understand grace. They're talking about something else. But grace will always lead you to love. See, greed will sweep you away like a current. It's like being on that 45 or 50 degree incline down here at stair steps and losing power or getting afraid. I've, I've gotten crossed up so many times, my wheel's going crazy and I'm falling off and I, so I quit. I just let the gas off. And at that moment, disaster strikes. You either go backwards or sideways or something, but you're in trouble because you've let off. 
And what the sage is telling us is you've got to be all in with all your strength, all your power, all your effort. You cannot hold back. You can't give up. Now at the gym, when we go work out, Michelle and Scott and, and some of the others of you that go, Sarah and Raul go, when you go to the gym, sometimes you're lifting and you can't lift. What do you need when you can't do the lift? What do you need? You need a spot. You need somebody there to help you. And the sage is saying to his son and daughter, I will spot you. I'll be there for you. When you lose power, I'll be there to help you. I've fallen many times and my brother David's run up the mountain and, you know, saved my life. Greed will sweep you away. But wisdom and the love that wisdom produces will keep you going. And then he appeals. Listen to this, it's beautiful. He gives imperatives, but he appeals to making choices, but not just making choices just because I told you so. You know, what, what did we always tell our parents? Our parents would always say to us when we say, well, why do I have to do this? I said, because I said so. And was that, now that you're an adult, was that ever satisfying? It never satisfied me. Because you tell me so? No, no, no. I want to hear something a little bit more substantial than that. Now, if your dad is like mine, who was much bigger than you and could break your face, you would say, okay, then I will do it. <laughs> but we didn't like it, you know. But, what, but look at what the father's saying. He's making an appeal and he's not saying, do it or I'm going to break your face. He says this, my son, your father, your mother, my son, Do you hear it? Do you hear the tenderness? Do you hear that He's asking you? He's asking the child. And He's asking you and I now as adults. He's asking us to make our choices not because He told us to, not out of raw, cold obedience. Okay, I'll do whatever I say because I know you're going to break my arm if I don't. No, He's saying, make your choice because I love you. You're mine. Like we said to this child this morning, what God is saying is, this is my child. I am putting my mark on my child and I will be faithful. Will you trust me? Will you trust me? That's what He asks every parent. Will you trust me? That's what He's asking us as adults. Will you trust me? The choice that God is asking us to make, folks, listen carefully, He's asking you to make your choices based on your relationship to Him. Not out of raw obedience. Raw obedience will only take you so far. Let me tell you this way. Raw obedience will take you to the Garden of Gethsemane, but it won't get you to the cross. Yes? It'll take you to the garden, all right. You'll go to the garden and you'll ask God all kinds of questions. Why is this happening to me? Is there any way out of this? I don't understand. I don't like what's going on. I want to be free. I want to die and go and see heaven open. But only obedience based in relationship will take you all the way to the cross. 
only there. So he says, greed, this way of greed will take you to death. But relationship and love will take you to life, to salvation, to the way of wisdom, to safety. So how do we do it? Well, look at this third part. It's in, actually in verse 9. Uh, so you've got to kind of roll back there. He says wisdom, and he says it's instruction and teaching. The instruction of the father, the teaching of the mother, will bring you life. And what they will be is a graceful garland. That was, uh, they, would, they would take a, 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 a branches from some sort of a tree or something, and they would weave them into a graceful garland. And this was a sign of victory. In other words, when you choose wisdom, when you choose life, when you choose that path, when you listen to your parents' instruction, when you follow God's ways in your life, what he's saying is you will be crowned with this wreath, this garland that represents victory. It represents life. You know, they didn't take an old dead twig. They took a living branch. Are you with me? A living branch with beautiful foliage on it and flowers and they would weave it into this beautiful crown. (coughs) I have a hard time thinking about that because I know what I'm going to say in a minute. And I think some of you know what I'm going to say too. Victory. It represented victory. And then they would bring this necklace, beautiful adornment, and lay it like a, like a, a lay. Those of you that have been to Hawaii, the, the O'Connors have been to Hawaii, Dave and Carol, they, they, to welcome you. They lay this beautiful wreath of flowers around your neck, a symbol of honor and glory and welcome and love and hospitality. And it was grace. It was grace to you. How do you get it? Well, you know, because I gave it away. Jesus Christ exchanged that garland for the head, for for a crown of thorns. He didn't get a wreath around his neck. He was stripped, stripped naked in honor. There was no honor for him. He was beaten to within an inch of his life. In fact, many scholars say that when he went to the cross, he was half dead. That's why it only took him so many hours to die. Other prisoners stayed for hours up on the cross. He didn't last long because he was beaten to death. And what? For what? So that you and I could have that crown of glory and that pendant. And so that we could obey Him, not out of raw obedience, but out of joy and delight and pure, unadulterated love and grace. Because He did it for you not so that you would owe Him anything, but so that you would be free from all debt forever. So that the love that we return to Him could be free. On the cross, 
God did something. The Apostle Paul put it this way. Let me finish with this. So that you could have wisdom. How do you get wisdom? Listen to how the Apostle Paul put it. He understood perfectly. Christ is the power of God. Listen. And the wisdom of God. God chose the cross, what is foolish in the world, to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And, listen to this, and because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Do you see that, folks? When you come to Jesus, He asks you simply, follow Me. Trust Me. I'll take you up that mountain and every trap that was set for you I will and have already exploded on me. Every fall, every terror, every mistake I have taken on me, now you can go freely, love me, freely, serve me, freely. Will you trust Him? Will you? I hope you will. And if you do, the promises to you and to your children of the Holy Spirit and wisdom for your life. Good choice, bad choice. You're going to need wisdom in both. Will you trust Him? I hope you will. Father, we thank You for Your kindness and mercy. And as I think of the garland of glory that I wear today. I have to think of that thorn, that crown of thorns that He wears and did wear for me. I thank You, Father, for our Lord Jesus Christ and for the life that He gave. And as we come to Your table today to celebrate this holy sacrament, I pray that You will renew in every person's heart here the commitment and love that You have made for them so that they in turn might commit their lives to You. Please do it for us, Father. You promised. We're asking You to do it. Please. In Christ's name. Amen.